You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and, and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Get ready to explore the wild of Northern Rockies adventures. Imagine yourself surrounded by pristine waters, towering mountains, and the thrill of landing trophy fish like the majestic Arctic grayling, the elusive bull trout, or the classic rainbow trout. With over 40 years' experience guiding anglers through these breathtaking landscapes, Daniel's family-operated trips promise not just a fishing journey, but an adventure of a lifetime. From the convenience of Vancouver, BC, dive into an all-inclusive experience that caters to every detail of your trip so you can focus on the thrill of the hookup. Take a look for yourself at northernrockiesadventures.com for an exclusive premium BC fly-in fly fishing trip. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, Mac? I'm doing great, Dave. How are you doing? Uh, really good. Really good. We're going to jump into uh, a lot today, I think. Um, we're going to talk, you know, some of your home waters where you guide out in kind of the North Carolina area. We're going to talk uh, fly casting, uh, a guide school you have going, a bunch of things. It seems like you're pretty busy out there. So uh, before we jump into all that, take us back into your first memory of fly fishing. Let's start there and then we'll grab your other stuff. Sure. Sure. I started back in the, the Ozarks around Salem, Missouri as a kid with my grandfather's the one that introduced me to it. And that's kind of what got me started as a young kid was uh, the time he spent with me and started me off with an old HMG Fenwick rod. And um, that's what I had as a kid, fished all through my youth, basically, with that rod. Right. So the Fenwick and, and the Ozarks. Talk about that. So the, the Ozarks, how long were you in the Ozarks? And then did you eventually head out of that area? Yeah, we, we lived out there. I was born out there in the early 60s and uh, we moved. To East Tennessee in 69 and um, that was up in Greenville Tennessee up to the South Holston Watauga a lot of little mountain streams that come out of the North Carolina line in the mountains up there like Paint Creek Horse Creek area and um, so I did most of I guess kindergarten through high school in East Tennessee then I went back to school in Missouri for college and I moved here after college and been here ever since in Bryson City yeah that's right and, and what uh, what got you to to Bryson City originally uh, probably from hiking the Appalachian Trail. It comes through here through the park, and it comes all through the Nantahala National Forest, and the park being the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And I just remember when I went up to Maine, you know, this had some of the biggest long-range views and biggest mountains in the East Coast or all around the house here. So when I looked at the map and realized 90% of this county was owned by the federal government, I thought, there's where I'm moving. Huh. Just because there's a lot of outdoor opportunity here. Yeah, right. Right. And what is the break? I'm trying to, I'm not great on my geography, but uh, the, the border between 
Tennessee and North Carolina? How, where where is that border? Oh, look, well, the national park is on the you know the state line. Newfound guy, part of that's in Tennessee, on the other side to the west of me, and then you know the east side of Newfound Gap, Clingman's Dome, is one of the highest three peaks in the east, and then Mount Leconte's right there next to it. But um, so it kind of runs northeast like the state line, and it's you know real mountainous the whole way up to Virginia. So there's pretty big mountains. I mean, for the east, they're big mountains. They're like 6,700-foot mountains. And that sounds like, well, that's not that big, you know, compared to out west. But then again, out west, you're starting at a mile high. Yeah. So it's the same relative <laughs> perception is what I'm saying. We're starting down, you know, like Tennessee starts down at like 800, 900 feet, looking up at 6,700 feet. So that's the same magnitude of big, you know, relatively speaking. Right, right. Gotcha. Yeah, this is really cool. So the... Yeah, you're right on. I mean, you're pretty much right in the the forest on the mountain. Are you pretty near the the top of kind of the, well, I guess Great Smoky Mountains is huge, but are you kind of straddling both sides like Tennessee, North Carolina, kind of, you know, similar areas? Well, Bryson, where I live, I live in a valley. Okay. It's a valley along the Tuckasegee River, and I live on Deep Creek, which is one of the larger, you know, creeks that come out of the National Park. So the park line's about a mile from the house. So Oh, wow. To go up high as the crow flies, I mean, there's a trail called Nolan Divide above the house. We walk up there quite a bit with the kids since they were little. You can walk up to Clingman's. It's about 11 miles up to 6,700 feet from the house here. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah, you're in one of those amazing places because the Great Smoky Mountain, you know, I mean, that seems like, well, it's definitely a huge, obviously, a national park. What is it about the Great Smoky Mountains that makes it, you know, makes it a national park? Well, it became a park back in the 30s, and um a lot of different organizations in this part of the country wanted to preserve it, you know, to make it into a national park. And so the mid-30s is when the local, you know, the trout population here, German brown trout and rainbow trout was all stocked pretty much from locals. It wasn't from a state agency. In the early years, it was local people that would go up with, you know, wagons and the old milk containers and actually put fish in all these different creeks after it was logged heavily in the 20s. So really all the introduction of trout were were basically from the local people that wanted to have a, a sport fishery and of course they thrived and then they find out that the <laughs> you've heard you've heard about that the native brook trout in the national park you know yeah. it's it's unique and then they realize oh we got to get rid of all the invasives right you know? <laughs> right 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 so now it's this constant battle like a lot of the biologists and things want to preserve you know a char that's four to five inches instead of right. having a sport fishery that'll never fly yeah with the local people, because the local people that put those in there, you know, a lot of the friends of mine that I fished with, it was their grandparents that stocked it. And, of course, we want to see it. We want to see brown trout grow to large sizes and stuff, not so much. I couldn't make a living if we had four-inch fish. No, there's a limit to there's a limit to the size. Well, brook trout are, are fun, and I haven't done a lot of brook trout fishing. We just got done with an episode up in the um, up north, quite a ways north, into, um, you know, looking at some of those giant brook trout up in Canada you know, right. a little different deal right up there. Some of those versus the smaller, like high headwater stream. Um, so do you not have, so brook trout, I guess, historically, that's the thing. They've just evolved to the smaller streams in that area. You don't have really any brook trout that are lower in the system that are larger at all. I don't think they were ever. Yeah. I might be wrong, but I, I don't know of them ever being lowered. Like 4,000 feet and up is where you'll find most of the brook trout fishing. And um, I don't think they ever were low down like in Tuckasegee or Nanahala. Yeah. I think they were always held up to upper elevation. 
probably too, maybe too warm, but no, I hear what you're saying. We've had this conversation too about the, you know, and this happened all over the country. You know, you go out West to, you know, Montana and, and Idaho areas where they're <clears throat> talking about, you know, there's native fish and it's a big, uh, constant, um, you know, debate. Yeah. Do you get rid of all the giant uh, brown trout and, and rainbows and, and, uh, and then just bring back all the other native. And I think that, uh, it feels like there's like a balance there where there are some areas where you can keep the native fish, but you definitely that wouldn't make sense to wipe out, right. What, what you guys are really enjoying. Oh yeah. There's plenty of high elevation streams too, that are really small. Yeah. Where those fish are well protected. And there's a lot of them that are, that are off limits to fish at all, you know, for brook trout up high. So they have a, a, you know, a good range. I think right now they've kind of hit a good balance. Yeah. Cool. Nice. Myself, I mean, I remember years ago, one of the, well, a good friend of mine that was a park biologist had a local meeting here in my town. And he called me to ask if I'd come to the meeting because he knew there'd be a lot of opposition. I didn't really know what he was going to talk about. And yeah, there was a lot of opposition. They were talking about wanting to come down lower on a lot of these much bigger streams and wrote none to oh, wow. poison off all the invasives and stock four inch fish. And of course the local people went wild. Yeah, I'll bet. And I can't say that I blame them. This area is $170 million a year in fly fishing huh. is that's the 2019 study done by the wildlife commission and when you have that kind of a dependency on tourism and there's like four or five hundred guides here now in western carolina so yeah that would be that would be devastating to the economy if they went ahead and did that you know yeah totally no i, I get that for sure well, it looks like, in, you know, on the surface, um, like you're in this really amazing part. I mean, what are the people, I'm just kind of curious about this, you know, are, are you seeing people coming in there, new people moving to the area? It seems like such an amazing place. What is, you know, I guess there's that question, but also what do you love about just living in Bryson City? What's the, you know, great thing about kind of that area? Well, I, I taught whitewater a long time as well, mm. like, like kayaking, canoeing for um, NOC, Nanahela Outdoor Center. And my wife worked there for years as well. And um, so it's really just a community of all, it's like an outdoor mecca. And NOC employs about 600 people. And um, they always had inns like back in the early years. It started in 72, 1972. And um, they were always really big, like Patagonia, like even like when you call customer service at Patagonia, they're all friends that used to work here on the river. Oh, wow. So when Patagonia would have layoffs back in the 80s, early 90s those people would come work at noc so so it was just like this community because the town's only a thousand people and like i said there's 600 river people that came from all over the world to work here so a big part of this community is that river community that's why i like it i mean that's why i stay here a lot lot of the friends that i worked with in the mid 80s when i moved here um it's just i don't know of anywhere else that's that's like that that's quite like this anywhere in the country right and you have beautiful weather right i mean your weather throughout the year is pretty awesome too right yeah you know i mean climate change stuff going on we don't we don't get near the snow we used to get a lot of snow in the winter like i used to be able to put on cross-country skis and just go cross-country on the at all winter long and last year we didn't get but what one dusting it's been that way now for 22 years it's just less and less you know pre-tip um even right now we're in severe drought we've had like five months of no rain and um this is the lowest water levels have ever been recorded here hopefully that's going to change soon i think come middle of winter we'll start maybe getting some rain again but the water levels are lower than i've ever seen here right now squala fly fishing combining advanced materials with fishing focused purpose-built design squala waders jackets shirts pants and insulation are made for us 
To help Wet Fly Swing listeners right now, Squala is offering a 10% discount on your next order. Just visit squalafishing.com and use the coupon code WETFLYSWING10 at checkout. That's Squala, S-K-W-A-L-A, gear for us, the serious angler. What is it like uh, summertime? Are you getting some pretty hot weather as well? Not really. Like, we're probably cooler. Like, for all the people that live around here, like Raleigh, Atlanta, some of the bigger metropolitan areas, those are all, like, Atlanta's only two hours away south of here. And, you know, they'll do their big western trip to Montana. And it's like, this has been affecting Montana for a long time as well. Because I've, I've gone out there every year since back in the 60s. Huh. And you go out to Montana and look at the water temp on half the rivers come July. And it's actually colder water living back here. Right. So... So our water stays in better condition. I mean, our water never got in the upper 60s this year. And I mean, Montana, you get up into 75. Oh, if yeah. you're on the Yellowstone or the, I don't care where you are. I mean, the Madison, they got like hoot owl operations because Montana's gotten hotter and hotter the last 20 years. But anymore, I'm not even, <laughs> is is that to right. go out there and like it's up into British Columbia or somewhere? Because I'd rather fish British Columbia personally. I like it better up there. Yeah, up in BC. Where do you, where do you head up? Uh, what are you fishing for up there in BC? Well, I like the bull trout fishery off the Kootenai, and I like to go up in the mountains. There's, you know, you go up in the mountains about around Fernie. I love it all around Fernie, and um, there's just so much good water, and they don't seem to have the heat problem like lower, like in Wyoming and Montana. And it's just changed a lot. Like in my lifetime, I've seen Montana change. We never had to worry about water temps in Montana really until the last 15 years. And so, yeah, I just think that a lot of times, you know, people think going somewhere else is going to be better and like a lot of times i look where i live and i'm thankful that yeah <laughs> we have cold water like year round you know <laughs> yeah it seems like you're in a, this really cool place this is awesome it's been fun raising raising two boys here they started off pretty young around the, the youth clinics and um for like team usa kids like all the all the youth clinics are out of here oh really as well yeah this is where they do all the training for them and um so they've been at those since they were babies and i mean now they're 17 and and 14 years old so it's really it's kind of fascinating to me like we'll be out and then they'll remember stuff back when they were kids hearing hearing one of us talk about it at, at one of the training camps you know and then then a, i'm always shocked i'm like man they were listening huh right <laughs> so a lot of stuff rubs off just from them being at all those when they were little that um kind of surprises me because it wasn't like i was teaching them specifically you know at that time right but you are a casting instructor right you have uh kind of that certification yeah, yeah, that's what I do the most on the road is talk about casting because that's usually the easiest thing. That's the lowest hanging fruit in the sport to fix, you know. Yeah. Once people get that fixed, of course, there's a there's a lifetime of stuff that goes along with that. But I think that that's the easiest to attain, and the biggest demand, I guess, too, on the road. You know what I mean? It's like people getting ready to drop twenty thousand dollars to go to the Seychelles or the Christmas Islands, and they can't cast thirty feet. Then those there's your clients, you know. Yeah, exactly. No, casting is obviously huge, and it's a especially for people getting into it. A lot of people think you know it's a big uh, block for new people, thinking it's so hard. And I want to talk about some casting for sure today. Yep. Yeah. So maybe, but let's hear the home waters first, and then we'll jump into some casting. So remind us again, what what are the rivers you're guiding out there mostly? What's your focus there? Well, I spend a lot of time on wild. I like the wild trout water, and I I help start the the delayed harvest in North Carolina back in 91 with the Wildlife Commission. The first one was on the upper Nantahala River, and the second one was at um, Tuckasegee River in Webster. 
North Carolina, which is about 20 miles north of here where the college is. And we were teaching a college program up there at Western Carolina back in the early 90s. And that's why that program was put there, because one of the District 9 commissioners, there was only like seven of them at the time, and he was from Silva. And so he said, well, you need a you need a place right here for a DH. And I'm like, yeah, I do, because he was on the board. He just mentioned it to the board in Raleigh. And the next thing I knew, we had the second one up there at the college. Now there's 37. So, oh, wow. I mean, they're, they're all up, in, you know, from Georgia line up to Virginia in the mountain. And what are these? There's 37. What are the 37? What are these? Uh, delayed harvest, which means they'll plant fish from October up until uh, first Saturday in June. And that way, you know, it's a big Yahoo for all the, you know, people are learning new techniques. It's just a lot of stock fish. Oh. Like the river below my house is, um, it's got wild fish in it too, but you know, by the time they stock it through the winter months, there's about 28,000 fish in two mile area. So it makes it a lot easier for people doing floats. And of course it's also turned into like Disneyland Yeah, in a lot of ways, but <laughs> it's like, that's one of the drawbacks, isn't it? Oh, right. Just, just more people on the river. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause with that much stocking and of course when people are, you know, learning techniques, it's great for that, but I'd much rather guide on like, we've got some fantastic wild water, which I'd rather I'd rather do most of the work. I, I worked a lot on the freestones. Oh, okay. And these would have, are these freestones that are, what, what are the species in the freestones or what, how's it different than say where they're stocking all those fish? Mostly rainbow and brown trout. We've got some great brown trout wild fish um, that have been in here since the mid thirties. And that's real rewarding. Of course, the, the casting, the canopy, the, the currents is, is much, you know, it's just a lot more technical attributes because a lot of times it's like casting inside of a cave, you know? It's like totally rounded with trees all around you. So it's like for the variety of free form casting of using a lot of spade cast varieties with single hand, this just makes it a lot funner. I, I, I enjoy it for that reason. And so what it's done in a way, it's a good thing for people that are, there's a lot of local people here that have started, you know, fly fishing that are up in their eighties. Good friends of mine that I fish with that are that age that have been doing this all their life. And it keeps a by having those DH programs, in a way, it's a great thing because it puts people on those and takes all the pressure off the good wild water, you know? Right. Is that the water you're, are you floating typically in a raft most of the time out there? If we're on like the Tuckasegee or the Nantahala, yeah, we're in a raft usually because it's just easier to cover a lot of water. But um, the freestone water, no, the freestone water I'm wading. Yeah, you're wading. How do you spell that? How do you spell the Tuckasegee? T-U-C-K-A-S-E. Then G, E, E. Yeah, tuck a CG. Yeah, that's right. Tuck a CG. Perfect. Yeah, and that means land of the turtle in Cherokee. That's what it oh, translates wow. to. Land of the turtle. There you go. So for all those deadheads out there, they'll like that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's good. So that's like one of your big rivers. You're, you're floating that river. And you're when you're doing that floating, are you fishing kind of out of a boat? What's the technique you would be doing there? Oh, yeah. We fish out of, well, I mean, when we're fishing out of a boat, yeah, we do a lot of different, I mean, depending on the time of year. Really, right now, right now we're doing a lot of uh, dry fly just because the fish have really looked up well. We've had a lot of good midge and blue wing hatches pretty regular. But in the spring, in the springtime, I would say most of the time I'm pulling triple wet flies. And um, I like fishing wets quite a bit. And in the spring, that's probably the most productive technique. Oh, okay. Is this like a wet flies kind of like a, like a Davy Watton sort of style where you're cast that sort of thing? Oh, yeah. Davy's been out here a bunch. Yeah, I mean, we'll do that. We'll fish like a mudger daddy up top, like real similar to what he's doing. Or a lot of times I'll, I'll fish like old Irish sweats, um, like videos, Kate McLaren's, things like that in the spring for hatches, just triple wets where, and it depends on the, you know, 
light condition and all that. If it's really a bright day, then I'll be on a DI3, DI5, somewhere like that to put those three wets down. And if it's real overcast, then I'll probably be throwing an intermediate or a floater. Oh, so you're the DI3, DI5. That's now explain that a little more. Just for the sink rate of the line so that they're going to sink bigger. Oh, just the sinking. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Three inches. But yeah. So you're so you're putting on a sinking line with wet flies and ca- is that how you're and then you're stripping them in? Yeah, I just like that method better because it's I find it really boring. There's, I mean, I know most of the places around the country, including here, they rig up and they'll put you know a pattern. And they'll be like a big float. And I just can't. I can't do that. It's sixty years old. Float down a river and watch a float. I mean, I don't think I'd stayed in this that long if that's what I did because yeah. I, I find it very boring to watch a float. You know what I mean? It's like the problem with it is it's not covering much water. And with the wet fly game, you can swing and cover vast amounts of water very efficiently and and quick, you know, to cover what you're trying to cover. And you're showing it to a lot higher number of fish. So by the end of the day, I think the numbers speak for themselves. Yeah. So you're swinging wet flies and you're doing some all sorts of different things with the wet flies depending on the conditions? Yeah. I mean, we'll fish them upstream. We'll fish them across. There's a lot of different tactics with it but i mean a lot of times we'll fish them upstream and dead drift them back on a floater yeah during a hatch and um there's just a lot of ways you know to do that and then it also opens up the opportunity to work a little bit with their casting instead of watching somebody lob it oh yeah the length of the rod over the side of the boat of course i didn't get it that'd be tough to do man i don't see how people do that every day i, I really don't that's why most guides won't make it to 60 and still be guiding you know right it's because they're going to get burnt out man if that's there's got to be more than that and it's like it's not just here it's all over the country but i just think that you know we try to preach that a lot during the guide schools too yeah about teaching the core components you know people need to go away better than when they showed up and to do that means you're gonna have to address casting line control techniques you know duties of the line hand for pulling off drift hook set playing fish and landing fish and i feel like every trip all all of my guides you know they're preaching those five core components every trip because people need to go away you know, understanding a little more than when they showed up. If all they did was lob a bobber and didn't get a dissertation on anything, even though they got a bobber every time they, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be tough for them to do well. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, I hear you. No, that's 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 a great point. Is that yeah? I mean, there's a lot to fly fishing and uh, and to keep it interesting. You know, I think diversity is kind of one of the things I found. You know, I still struggle at casting. You know, I've done it all, but I think I still struggle at a lot of stuff. You know, I still have a lot to learn. It seems like that's what's exciting about it, that you all know, you know, you got this lifetime to keep learning, which is cool. What, what Talk about the guide school a little bit. So this is really interesting because there are a few, I've heard about some guide schools around the, the you know, on the podcast, but what is yours? Talk about what it is and what people would learn there. Well, it, it goes over those, those five components quite a bit, and then it go, goes into each tactic of, you know, dry fly, there's a day spent on dry fly fishing, a day just on wet fly fishing. And wet fly and stream are really just pretty similar to be, I know, I know everybody thinks, well, one's a bait fish and one's a small insect. But let's face it, as far as the two things, they're actually, I look at them pretty similar. Yeah. To say that they're um, a speed change, to mix up speed and to mix up a direction change is really the same thing, isn't it? Whether we're talking a small streamer or a wet fly, I could care less which one's on the end of the line because I'm going to fish it pretty much the same. And I know a lot of people try to act like streamers, this entire different entity. And I don't buy it. I've streamer fished plenty in my life. And I mean, I've tied a lot of articulated stuff before articulated was cool back in the seventies. Yeah. And it's like, it's not anything new. I mean, it just keeps getting rebranded 
you know, it's like rebranded, rebranded for patterns and whatever reason. But um, speed change and direction change will still be the two universal things that make them highly related for wet flying streamers. So there's a day on that. There's a day on rowing. Oh, nice. And the first day of the school is all on casting. It's all on improving their casting as well as how they're going to help improve other people's casting. So we spend the first day just on that with every school. So it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun watching them grow over the week. And, um, yeah, a lot of, lot of concept and strategy. That's really the biggest thing though. I think the schools bring for people. And it's like Davey says it does when he was here talking around the patio, Watton, um, yeah. he goes, you know, there's just no way somebody could start at 40 and expect to get some, like the amount of strategy and stuff that somebody like Watton's accumulated in a lifetime being on the water and, or what we're teaching in the school. I mean, there's just not enough hours. You'll never get it alone. There's just one, people aren't going to have the time to get it is what I'm saying. So it makes sense instead of, you know what I mean? To get, to get some training, hopefully for they enjoy, you know, deeper enrichment of the sport down the road where they have a clue what they're trying to do. The big thing that's dangerous about it is when they don't even have a clue what it is they're trying to do, you know, from watching YouTube or something, YouTube's not teaching those things. YouTube's not teaching strategy, is it? No. I think it has a lot to be desired still from what I see on YouTube anyway. Yep. Yeah, I agree. That's where I think like specialized individual training makes a big difference. Yep. No, this is, this is really great. I think so. And so you have this school basically, and this is kind of like a, a week long, like five days sort of thing forward five days. Yeah. We run, I think this year we ran, ended up running nine schools this year. We just finished up one a couple of weeks ago for November. And, um, yeah, next year I just ended up putting the new dates up and then that's, that's part of what the, the new dates for 24 up on the site at flyfishingguideschool.com. And big part of getting it is just keep, keep doing it. And on the road, a lot of, a lot of the people funnel in from, you know, out West coast and Northeast from the number of shows I've been doing All right. a lot of shows since 93. And I think that gets them curious, you know, cause a lot of people have never seen that every time you got a new person, it's their first time at a show. And you get the opportunity to talk for an hour on the casting pond and um, show like different curves and piles and all kinds of varieties of tuck cast angles. And it's like, man, then they realize all they've been doing is throwing it out with no intent. Then they start realizing, man, there's some, there's some, there's some yeah. meaning to this madness, you know? And that's what gets their curiosity. So I think everybody, once they decide to commit to growing, whether it's casting or, or a technique fishing, it, they, it first has to come from them. It really does. But what makes it come from them is you got to get them curious and you get them curious by showing them there's other ways. Yeah. Showing them some of those cool casts. So that's kind of part of what you do. You're out there still doing a lot of the show season. Are you, are you doing, how's that look this next year in 24? What shows are you hitting? Yeah, it's going to be busy. It's, it's going to start out. I'm going to do uh, Denver, Denver first. That's a, that's become a fantastic show. Um, it's just grown so much over the last five years that I think it's probably the best show in the world now, as far as attendance and number of people there. And then, uh, Edison, New Jersey, Atlanta, Pleasanton, California, in the Bay Area, and then the Midwest fly fishing show up there in Michigan. That's the that's the five that I'm going to do this this winter. Yep. And then there's a lot of little club events and things too. But but those those bigger shows are, I, I really enjoy those. Those are a lot of fun. Also get to see your friends from Europe and people that I don't get to see during the year. Right. So at those shows, are you typically doing casting demonstrations? Or are you mixing things up, or what do you do there? Well, I do tying. I do casting. Uh, do a lot of classes like casting classes um we've done some classes like just on like rigging 
things like that. I mean, just for talking about rigging, like for king salmon versus, you know, trout fishing versus just let's go over like knots and rigging and, and where do we put the weight and why do we change it quite a bit, you know, to figure out what rig's going to work best for this situation. So it just gives people options so they can go down just like, have I tried this? Yes. If, if I tried that and if the answer is no, then they have another way to rig you know, for, for trying, a lot of people don't know how to rig a drop shot rig. Right. And it's like, that's one of the simplest things in the world, but they just, they hadn't heard it, you know? Yeah. What is that drop? Give us the quick drop shot. What is that rig? Well, that's like what you see a lot out West on Western rivers where people are floating in a boat and you have a, a suspension device up top and then they'll have their, their nymph rig and the way that they rig the weights to be ticking the bottom, but not catching the bottom. So you spread your weights out, you know, on the bottom, on the point. And you separate them rather than put like one big ball of lead, you put a whole bunch of smaller pieces of lead so you can get it fine-tuned. The goal being to keep a fly exactly in the zone, the zone being the boundary layer where the fish are actively eating. And that's really all about getting the rig right, you know. Once it's balanced to where it needs to be, that's the difference of doing really well and, and struggling, you know. So so the rigging classes have been a lot of fun too, but I enjoy teaching the casting classes the most. That's what I do the most at all, the, all those shows on the road. I really enjoy those because you'll get 10 people and you get them for a couple, two and a half, three hours. And um, the other one I enjoy a lot at those venues for Denver and Edison and Atlanta and Pleasanton is Gary and I've been doing those for a number of years and uh, Gary Borger. And we have an eight hour advanced line control class and that goes over all the curves and piles and basic default cast distance distance casting it covers the whole gamut in eight hours and that's been really a lot of fun to teach right right so you uh and is, gary's probably going to be going to the show this year these next year too yeah we're going to do we'll do all those the day before the shows begin we do it on a thursday okay so the show usually for the three-day shows most of them are three-day shows friday saturday sunday we'll teach the eight-hour class on the thursday before and they can find that info on the flyfishingshow.com website yeah that's right and didn't gary uh last couple of years moved near you right to your neck of the woods from the west no he wanted to he wanted to move here yeah <laughs> he was in up in uh wisconsin and he moved out to portland he lives out near portland and um that's where jason lives is portland oh in uh, uh up north northwest yeah portland oregon oh really oh i didn't know that okay so wow okay yeah i haven't talked to him in a little while so he's back out so he's in portland now he went from where was he? He was in uh, kind of the Montana area, right, for a while, and then moved. I thought he moved to the East Coast for a bit, didn't he? No, he was up in up in uh, I think Wausau, Wisconsin. Oh, that's right. And when he retired from being a college professor, he moved out to be closer to the grandbabies and Jason. Oh, good. Yeah, so he's been working, fixing up a house, and he's he's done with it now. I think all the big projects and <clears throat> yeah, that's a real pretty area too. I li- I like that area. Yeah, around the Northwest, it's a fun area to visit. Yeah, yeah, that's where we are, or that's where physically I am. I, I travel, we do uh, kind of, we have our own kind of school program. We go around the country with the podcasts and stuff. But um, but yeah, it's definitely, that's one of the things you think about it, you know, as the, the climate is getting, you know, uh, more fires and stuff. Oregon's not a bad place to be because, um, especially as you get to the coast, is that, you know, it's not as hot here and there's lots of rain. So we're not lacking of rain. That's one thing we have here. Oh yeah, that's good. Yeah. We used to be. We used to always get, you know, quite a bit of rain. When I moved here in the mid-80s, this was like a temperate rainforest, similar to out where you live. Yeah. But it's really changed. Like, what would you get? What would you get back in the 80s? How many inches of rain do you, would you get per, say, year? Like 110 inches a year. Oh, wow. Wow. So that's exactly what, I mean, that's what the coast of Oregon gets about that now, and maybe 100. 
What? So what do you get now per year? Way less. I mean, we're, we've been in severe drought. We've got fires all around here right now. And um, I think this year, like 55 to 60 inches is what it's been in the last 10, 15 years. So we're going to see a lot of species diversification happen. With um, This is the highest area in the world of deciduous trees. Oh, Even freshwater fish, this is one of the highest diversity. I think the Amazon headwaters is one of the only other places in the world with as many species of darters and daces here. So we have a lot of species of everything. Insects, we have the highest species of insects in the world huh. for aquatic insects. Wow. So for entomologists that want to study bugs, I mean, this is where a lot of the really good programs are at schools like in the southeast that study like this area. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of different insects. So, <clears throat> yeah, we don't worry about... <laughs> there's like 700 species of caddis flies, so, I mean, we don't worry about... You're not going to lose those. ...tying 700 caddis flies, as you can imagine. We just look at size, size, shape, and color. Back here with Daniel from Northern Rockies Adventures, and he's going to share some more Northern BC fishing tips. How are you doing, Daniel? Doing great, and today we're talking trout. Pretty excited. Yeah, it's always good to talk trout, uh, trout talk. So uh, today's going to be the headline is the trifecta of trout. So let's talk about what the trifecta is up to Northern uh, BC, where we're going to be heading to meet you. So I I really like uh, what everyone thinks of trout, you know, rainbow trout. That's just kind of the main species everyone's fishing up here. But uh, what's interesting is we have two other species. So we have the bull trout, which uh, was actually a, it's a landlocked Dolly Varden. And then we have the uh, the lake trout, which is uh, is actually in the char family. And probably the most underappreciated of the two here, or of the three. It's such a variety of trout. They all have unique angling opportunities and experiences. It's pretty fun to, to target all of them. If anybody wants to follow up further on this, we can, we'll send them out to nradventures.com slash wetflyswing. And we also have an episode coming up with you December 20th, 2023. This will be episode 540 where we're going to talk everything, trout, and just everything you have going up there in Northern Rockies. So until then, Daniel, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Dave. Pleasure. Well, I want to talk, you know, you, you mentioned it, the casting at the shows, you know, in your guide school, that's a big part of it. And casting is just always a struggle for, you know, there's always myself included. But how do you break that down? If you're taking somebody in, let's say it's this guide school or, or really anybody you're trying to coach, they come in, they've got some skills maybe in casting. What would you tell somebody listening here? You know, are there a few tips you would give somebody to help, you know, kind of uh, up their game a little bit on the casting? I would say first would be to get, I think the first most important thing really would be to get a default that'll serve you for a lifetime. Get a basic default stroke and learn to understand it backwards and forwards. For the default stroke, before you add the kitchen sink of all the advanced stuff, because we can't do any of the advanced stuff if the default is dysfunctional. Most people's stroke is dysfunctional because they've learned it being self-taught. And, I mean, I'm not self-taught. I didn't just wake up one day and could cast. I mean, I had lessons with Jim Green when I was 15. I spent a week with him out in Idaho. I spent a lot of time with a lot of world-class teachers over the years and teaching with them and just seeing how they teach and what they say and and how that helps formulate like who you are. And the good stuff, you go ahead and put it in your bag of tricks. The stuff that you don't want to use, then you might not, but it's like there's tons of good information from, you know, world-class teachers out there in casting. And I don't mean the free lesson in the parking lot with somebody that just started. I'm talking about get a default, somebody that actually knows it really well to teach it yeah like pay somebody to get a lesson sort of thing oh yeah yeah i mean that's 
That's, I'm not saying all the free parking lot lessons might be flawed, but yeah. chances are they are. If they've only been doing it for a year, then I'd, I would imagine it's flawed. You're not going to get your, uh, your yeah, your uh, value. Well, you, you do get value. I, mean, I always think of it like a quote I think about just in general, in business, in general, whatever. You know, invest in yourself. I feel like that's always a good thing. Yeah, I mean, that's it makes sense. Yeah. It just makes good sense, you know? It's like, like I say, the, like I've done a lot of lessons this last month of people that are going to exotic places. That, you know, they're going to drop like some serious coin. A lot of cash. Yeah, and they come and... and to be honest, even that's the wrong approach. So maybe I'll even know, <laughs> even though I've done a lot of those over the years, the last forty years is a, uh, but it's the wrong approach. It's like, like I play Celtic fiddle and guitar mm. and a lot of different instruments, and I've been playing music stuff since I was five year old kid. There's no way somebody could come in a day to go, "Hey, Dave, I need a tune up." By the way, I want to play Celtic fiddle. <laughs> and you think I'm going to come away playing Celtic fiddle in an eight hour lesson? No. So what I'm saying by that is for those that like think they're going to get a tune up before they drop 20 grand on an exotic trip, that's a joke. Yeah. Like they should have been, it should have been a work in progress their entire lifetime. And I don't know. I just think that, I mean, I'll, I'll still try to help them, but will it really soak in? Are they really going to double haul and throw a hundred foot cast all day long and look cool? Yeah. Chances are they're not because there's going to be a ton of stuff they need to go work on and put it into their, their method, you know? Right. And my point is that it's just kind of funny. When it's like, Dave, I need a tune-up. I just got this rod, and I want to learn to fly cast, and I'm going to, you know, Christmas Island next week. I know, with the wind and all the, yeah, conditions and on a boat and everything. Yeah, so it needs to be in somebody's, I mean, really, the best casters I, I know out there. I mean, it's it's so much a part of them, and they're, they're geeks about it, just like I'm a geek about it. I mean, I like to get in the yard still with my boys, and we'll, we'll throw two or three days a week. Yeah. 15, 20 minutes playing games, you know. Well, what does that look like? Walk us through some of that. You're sitting out there with your kids, and what what do those games look like? What are you guys doing? We'll put a target out a lot of times, and we'll just have a contest on throwing 90-degree curves left and right, using different methods of curves. There's a lot of different recipes for throwing those types of curves. Then we'll just pick one and say, here's, we're going to do it from an aerial mend. You know, reach out, reach back, and who can lay it closest to the target? where the fly target is plus where the 90 degree angle is. So now we've got two targets. It's not just a singular target. See, most people think of targets as, as accuracy as being straight to and from. They're saying, hey, Dave, hit the target, like straight ahead. Right. Well, if you think about it, it's very rare on moving water that we present anything straight ahead. That's true. So, I mean, 90% of dry fly fishing is always a curve or a pile. Very rare do we throw a dry fly dead straight and hope for the best. So... These kind of games that I'm talking about develop what we actually use when we fish on water that moves, you know? Yep. So that's why we play those kind of games. Then we'll do it, you know, maybe over and underpowered curves. And it's just like, they've been doing those games since they were little. So, I mean, yeah, they can, the 14 year old might be, he might come out there and school everybody. Right. You know? Yeah. He's like, <laughs> he's pretty adept at it. So it just matters who's, who's throwing, you know, but it's, it's fun to do that still just to have, have these types of games, but. That's why I say the default, though, the default about how do we power. And this isn't like Mac or Gary Borger saying this. I mean, what Gary and I were really good at is taking all the stuff. And he used to run the Fenwick schools with oh, Jim yeah. Green and Mel Breeder for years back in the 70s. When I talk about default and teach casting on the road, it's not like a, you know how a lot of instructors years ago were like, man, this is Dave's method. Or oh, people right. try to take credit for how they move. And that's ridiculous. That's just so ridiculous. It's not even funny. But. The reality of it is, we, what we did is, George Selvin Marriott in England, back in the 1860s, 
dominated the world, best caster England ever produced. And he won like 30 world championships in a row. And he had to figure it out because fly casting as we know it today didn't, didn't really start till 1856. So when somebody was that adept to win 30 in a row, that's kind of like what Steve's done in America, Steve Rajev. That here's my point. What we teach about default is what the best in the world have done since 1860. And I mean, what we've done is taken Frank Steele from Chicago Casting Club, Marvin Hedges from the Portland Club. What we've done is look at all the world's greatest casters and said, you know what? They all did it the same way. And that's what we teach. And that's why we teach it. Yeah. So there's dysfunction if it's away from that. Right. How do you find that? Let's say somebody out there is somewhere in the country, you know, pick the state, pick the province, whatever, and they want to get to that default. Like, how do they find the right place to go to to get that started? Do you think, you know, what's your recommendation? Um, man, there's a lot of instructors, just like there's a lot of doctors, you know? Yeah. Like the FFI, I mean, is the Fly Fishers International sort of thing a good starting point since they have, is that the default? Is that what they teach? Yeah. I mean, if they're starting out, they have a thing about finding an instructor, you know, so they could go on there and find a CI, MCI. Yeah. I mean, two-handed instructors, two-handed MCI. Could they do that without actually going through the certification? But fly, maybe it's just a you know person listening here that just wants to up their casting game. Maybe they don't have a fly shop nearby. Yeah, that's on there for the public. But but you, it's just under if you just type in FFI, find an instructor, it'll bring it bring you to the web page where all you do is type in the country you're in, the state you're in, and it'll bring in the people that are close to you. You know what I mean? And then that's the best way I think to do it. That's it. Yeah, and then find somebody and maybe. Even if you don't work with them, just chat with them. Say, hey, this is what I need to do. Maybe I'm a beginner. Maybe I've been struggling, but I want to get my game to the default level and get there, right? So that, so that's it. Yeah. I mean, I, that, would definitely, that would definitely be a good first step. Now, everybody's default's a little different too, though. So, I mean, it gets tricky. Yeah, the default. Right, right, right. <laughs> what is the... I mean, yeah. somebody else's default might be different is what I'm saying. So I, I think you got to find something that's on the, on the same... Yeah, that's a tricky one, actually. That's hard to answer. And by default, what you what you kind of mean is the 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 mechanics, the ten to two, whatever you call it, is all at some standardized level, sort of thing. Well, yeah, like when it started out in 1856, even today, people still try to go back and revert. But but let's just say it like this: there's only three methods. Yeah, what was that in 1856? Why was that the starting point? That's where the rod and silk line got developed in England, and the and the bamboo rod was, you know, the first six sided. Bamboo rod was made by Samuel Philippi up in Pennsylvania. Um, that was the first time they had a rod that was other than tin car. Because mm. everything before that was just a pole with some string tied on the end. You know, they didn't cast it. I mean, you could cast it, but you didn't shoot line or do any of the other things as we know today. You know what I mean? So tin car, just like toss some horsehair on the end of a green heart rod and hope for the best. That's what fishing was before 1856. So, so when it came about, that's where a lot of things started to change. So when they started to figure this out, some of them tried it with just their wrists, you know, hold everything still and just move the wrist back and forth. Sure, you could cast a little ways like that. You might go out 20 feet, 30 feet. That might be all you wanted. Then there was others that used the bicep and tricep, moving the whole, you know, pivot and the forearm up and down. And then if they could, they could. Some of them even tried to move the forearm up and down with the shoulder being static. And then they add a little wrist with it too. And then they go a little further. But if you really want to get a default stroke, Full arm casting is is where it's at, like the full arm being involved, which means the shoulder has to lift the rod up and down. You see what I'm saying yeah. for default? Like that's that's what the best in the world have always done. They use the full arm. So if you gave a rod out to a hundred people and said, "Figure it out," 
Same thing would happen even today. Probably 30% would try it with just the wrist. 30% would try it with bicep and tricep. And 30% would try the full arm. Yeah. So <laughs> that's kind of fun. I mean, that is kind of the truth, though. That they'd probably be right at the same point as when they started it back then again. Right. But the biggest thing you see about defaults that have a lot of issues is it really boils down to rod load. You know, if they don't understand how to bend the rod into the cork, then they got a problem. It's, it's that simple. So rod load, yeah, it's a cool concept, and everybody knows what it means to bend the rod, yet some can bend it way more efficient. So that's what everybody wants. So that's why they need a lesson. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So if I say, okay, here's a, here's a longer cast into a 20-knot wind, yep. then that understanding that fact of bending the rod into the cork is the only way that's going to happen. The only way we're going to make the distance is to, is to be able to do that, not just know that's what we need to do, but to be able to implement it. Right. And how do you, how do you implement that? How do you bend the rod into the cork if you have to make a real a farther cast into the wind? Oh, just by full arm casting. I mean, by technically doing all those steps correctly. And there's, you know, there's a lot of steps. Like, how do we move the hand? What's the path of the hand? According to, like it shows, what you'll see a lot of people do is the hand will be going back and forth, like chest height back and forth, like an accordion. How's that going to rotate a rod? That makes sense. So that would be an inefficient method of bending it into the cork. Because if you push the rod back and forth, like you see so many people do, even out here on the river where I live, what happens is they're just getting a little bit of tip and mid-flex, but zero bending in the butt section. So if the butt section's never getting loaded, what's that do? just makes you work harder, but you're still not getting the result you want. That kind of makes sense. Yeah. Basically, I mean, you got to use, like you're saying, your whole arm. So if you're doing a cast that's 20 feet out, 15 feet out, you can just kind of do that however you want to do it. But if you're having to make a 60, 80 foot long cast, you got to use your whole arm, almost your whole body to really get the bend into the, into the cork. Is that the case? Yeah. It just makes it a lot easier. Cause what happens is, I mean, that's really kind of over the years, people, that's probably the most asked question I get on the road is people look, will say, Dave, I'm a great 30 foot caster. And I'm like, great. This cat can cast. And then in the very next sentence, they go, but I can't seem to cast 40 when it's windy. Right. Well, chances are you're not a good 30-foot caster. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, if, let's be serious here. Because if you were a good 30-foot caster, you shouldn't have no problem going way further. Yeah. If your mechanics were sound. So what happens is, this is the part people miss that I don't think people understand this. Anybody can throw. We could wad the whole 90-foot lineup and throw it like a baseball and still get close to 30. So good technique, bad technique, whatever. We'll all work at 20, 30 feet because that's really remedial stuff, isn't it? Yeah. So let's talk about middle distance, like 40, 50 feet. Now we got to have a concept about loops, what loops do, how they propagate, you know, have a parallel fly leg and rod leg. I mean, those need to be parallel. Because what happens if it's big dome shaped on the top? It's going to go out and pile when you might be wanting to straighten it. So we got to start to get a clue about loop formation and what it is to throw a nice efficient loop and the only way you get that is by i would say practice but here's the thing we used to always hear that when i was a kid practice doesn't mean mean anything because if you're practicing the wrong default over and over and over i would argue the fact that it's probably doing you way more harm yeah because you put it in your muscle memory you know that much deeper for the myelination the brain tells you to make a cast and you go right back into that default which is something you're trying to abandon if it's not the right default. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Because it's, I had a group on Saturday. This is funny. They were two twin 15-year-old girls. And the son runs against my oldest boy. He runs track and cross country. But this son was from uh, up in Boone. And the daddy was with him. And um, man, it was such a joy. They were all so trainable and moldable. Like at 15, the girls were just like 
rock stars. I had two guides on it. But anyway, I looked down the stream after about an hour and they're both throwing like 40, 50 foot perfect textbook loops. Yeah. These are beginners. Oh, wow. They're throwing better than most people with poor defaults that have been doing the sport 20, 30 years because they didn't get taught how to throw. So it's a beautiful thing when you look down and see two 15 year old kids that just took it up and they can throw beautiful loops and they, and they get it. Yeah. But they're starting in with the right thing. So my point is it, it can be a dangerous thing to practice something that's something you're trying to be rid of. When you have those those two, the kids on there, what's the first thing they come, they're brand new or anybody brand new, what's the first thing you do? What do you do with a brand new person? I'll just go over, I mean, we don't have like an eight hour thing to do a casting lesson. So now we've got to condense the highlight stuff in a shorter period of time, you know, because we, we spent about probably 20, 30 minutes up on the land before we ever went down to the river. So then we're just basically going over, you know, the casting, even like say it's a two hour class or a one hour class. Now we got to do it in 20 minutes and kids are sharp that way. You do it by pantomime. There's a lot of tricks. There's a lot of teaching tricks. We can use cues, props, um, pantomime, the motion where you go through the motion without even having a rod in your hand. You can correct all mistakes right then and there. Right. Then after you see what you like with just moving their hand back and forth, then you stick a rod in their hand and then they're, then they're casting. So Kids are real trainable that way. I mean, that's, that's what I always enjoyed about the college programs, teaching the college-age kids that were new or coaching the youth kids on Team USA. It's just, it's a real joy working like that. Young people, just, they're rock stars. Yeah, yeah, totally. No, that's awesome. And and what about a couple other things on, on the casting? So you hear a lot about acceleration. How does that fit into this? How does somebody listening now, if they want to, you know, is that a big problem on acceleration? Or what, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, usually, I mean, we're always saying in these lessons, like less is more for the reason that people use way too much effort. And so one of the demo things I'll do on the road, if listeners are like close to those cities for the shows, but one thing I'll always demo on a pond because people work so hard at this is if you make a back cast that has good loop integrity, it's got some sufficient tension in the in the loops. I'll make a back cast and then coming forward, I won't do anything with my arm. I'll just bend at my hips and just move forward six inches to break inertia of that back cast. And the whole thing will turn over up front 50 feet with no effort at all. And once people see it, then that, the reason I like doing that always on the road is to get people to chill out and quit working so hard. Because the harder they work, the more it's hurting them than helping them, you know? Yeah. And it's like, but that's a hard thing because men have a bigger issue, you know, with that because we're, we're taught in sport like, if you're going to throw a ball further, what do you got to do? You got to throw it faster and harder. But in casting, it doesn't work that way because you form a loop. The loop's all about how the loop works. How does it unroll? So one thing that people miss out on, I think, is the fact that the fly is always accelerating. Once you create a loop, if, if the fly's starting to, to travel somewhere with the loop, the fly's going faster and faster the whole time. Everything else you've done in your life slows down. But this is going faster. So... Men have a hard time realizing that the fly accelerates is what I'm saying. Yeah. And women seem to get it quicker because they don't try to overpower it, everything with muscle. So it's really more of a timing game, not a muscle game. That's why women are way better casters on, on average in less than even on a trip. I mean, I've been guiding since 85 for a living with schools and guide trips. I used to run 300 plus days a year and hardly ever have I had a couple where it's a husband wife where the husband did better than the wife <laughs> ever. Right. So that ought to tell men something that when they bring their wife and think that she's totally new and doesn't know anything, well, let me tell you, she's going to be in for, a, he'll be in for a rude awakening before the day's over. Right. Because it's always that way. It's always that she way. She catches the most fish. She casts better. She threw less knots. It goes on and on. Yeah. 
then he starts realizing, I just want to be as good as her. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's also because the sports, I really think a lot of it is sports. I think men are indoctrinated when something isn't going well to do it harder. And that's what mess a lot of guys. It'd take them many years before they really realize that, you know, because yeah. they're going to have it, even though they hear it, it's going to take them a long time to implement it's what I'm saying. Yeah, gotcha. Gotcha. What What are some of those casts that you do out there that, that people might want to know you hear about? You mentioned a couple of them, the, the, the curve cast, the tuck cast. What are some of the things that you think are, are key casts you should know? Well, I'd say the biggest thing is just dealing with the external surroundings, you know, of, of trees and cover. Because we got a lot of trees, man. We've got some of the most heavily canopy area in the nation probably here to fish on these free stones. And so there's a lot of obstacles. So I would say the biggest thing is to break away then once you learn a default to move away from the default. So, I mean, I'll talk a lot on the road about learning to work the line in front of you, which means the fly never goes in back up. So basically now we're talking about pickup varieties. We might use a circle, a figure eight, might just move the line side to side, but the dry fly or whatever we're throwing is always in front of me. Because it's so canopy that why would I want to take a risk on throwing it in back? Right. Then, so then everything, a modified roll cast for the delivery, and that might be 50 feet out, might be 40 feet out. But I fish in front of my body a lot. Right. Like kind of the, the roll cast, the single space sort of stuff, single hand spay, that type of deal. Well, there's a whole lot of single hand spay in this part of the country. Yeah. For the ones that are pretty good at fishing this part of the country without ever going in any trees. That's how we do it. So that's that's kind of a a life changer if they've been going back and forth to and from their whole lives and then they come up on one of these real tight streams i think they're going to have to be a lot of things that change yeah where do you start with that with the roll cast the single hand spay all that stuff with somebody is that an easy thing is that easier to teach than the back cast no i think it's harder <laughs> yeah it's harder um no i don't <laughs> i think it's it takes more time because most people's roll cast is not very hot i mean roll casting people struggle with roll cast way more than you think most people can't roll cast more than about 20 feet. And I mean, they can't roll cast. Like if you had triple wets and you asked them to roll cast 50 foot out, you know, static, most people think that's a really hard thing to do on trips. So, so I think the roll cast is a big, you know, like get out of jail free card for people. They can, if they're really good at roll casting, they can use that whenever, you know, to straighten a line before they pick up a cast and maybe just to deliver a fly. But the roll cast doesn't work unless it's mechanically pretty close to sound, you know? And that's, that's the thing. So I think that the roll cast is one of those big things for this part of the country. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot to, uh, you know, obviously casting, where, where do you send somebody again? We're talking about, I guess the shows are a good place to go. Um, probably, but like we said, finding a local, um, fly, you know, shop or guide or somebody that can show you that's kind of the starting point, right? I don't know, man. Cause I think a lot of those people mess them up. I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's like, they're there to sell gear, man. Let's face it. Right. I've been in education since I got out of college writing articles, books. I mean, I've been in education my whole life. When If I was totally different working at a shop trying to sell fly rods and flies and T-shirts, then chances are I'm just going to tell them what they need to close the sale. Does that make sense? Yep. I'm trying to close the sale here because we make money by selling stuff. Yeah. I don't have nothing to sell except education. So, yeah. <laughs> like, it's like that's what I chose to do because that's what I felt like develop relationships and long-term, you know, lifetime clients and friends that, that you get to meet over and over because you brought them value. And I feel a lot better about that than just selling a rod, you know? Yeah, definitely. Well, you teach them, you know, it's the same thing, right? Teach them how to fish and they're going to come back. They're going to love it. They're going to 
have less problems and probably be a lifelong angler if you teach them how to do it the right way as opposed to getting frustrated, right? Oh, yeah, and it makes it makes your life a lot easier too, developing, developing those people because you might, you might work them, you know, 30, 40 times over a period of a decade or two, you know? And so not only that is, is you're getting to do, from my perspective, you're getting to do more advanced things because they're, they're a better angler. And that's why I think it's a lot of gratification watching their journey progress, you know? Yeah. And that, that makes it fun because then you can do cooler stuff on the water. Right. Nice. Well, well, let's um, let's start to take it out of here. Um, just kind of, we've got a segment, our shout out segment here. And today I'm going to be thinking about kind of mentors. We've mentioned maybe a couple of them for you. Let's start there with on that is, is you mentioned Davey Watton. Are there a few mentors that you would highlight here that have helped you along the way that we haven't talked about yet? Oh yeah. There's a, there's a ton of them across America. Cause I've been, I've been around the, you know, the conclaves and gatherings and shows like that yeah. for a long time. I mean, I've worked with, I've worked at some point or another with all of both the year. Oh, with, and as, as FFI, FF, uh, you know, have you been involved in that for quite a while? Are you still involved in that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I was a board of governor. I'm an L2 examiner still for, for testing events. And I do a lot of mentoring for, um, CIs and MCIs and two-handed folks. Even now. I run a two weeks a year for, um, we just had a big testing event here. I think the Southeast, I think I put on the only Southeast testing event the last four years here. And what is the testing event? Is that for people who want to be certified? Yeah, that's where they're going to type their CI or MCI. So yeah, we have a specialized like weekend class for those that are thinking about going down the path of teaching. Yeah. Is that what it is on the certification? Are there pretty much most of those people going down the path of teaching? Are there anybody that goes there just because they want to get better at casting? Yeah, some of them just want to collect a badge to say they did it, which is fine. Others others are serious about wanting to become teachers. And I think a lot of times that people just want to improve their Because some of them have already worked and they've been professionals in some field or another. And they just want to do it for their own journey, you know, which is fine too. But um, yeah, it's everybody's got different reasons why they do it, I guess. Yeah, that's it. That's something people have talked about it who have been through it and we've heard some stories about how how it's not the easiest thing to do right people maybe think they're a better caster than they are until they get into it and they're like wow realizing like the stuff you're talking about like they're not even close to the level they thought they were that's right i think that's what it comes down to with uh like those specialized classes is most people at first just want to say they can do it you know the kinesthetically they can do the action without understanding and of course if you leave out the understanding that's a dangerous thing for long-term growth. So I just think that by going over the material for the long-term growth has to be the understanding <laughs> even before they kinesthetically do it. Does that make sense? Cause usually that's how people learn it the best. I mean, you can't train all these things to get a kinesthetic movement. And what do you mean by that? Talk about the kinesthetic. What does that, what does that mean exactly? I mean, I mean where everything's spot on perfect. Oh, okay. Like, okay. Now it's no big deal to pick up a line of five weight and throw it 120 feet. Right. That's kinesthetically starting to get perfect, right? Yeah. If they're still stuck at 55, there's probably a problem. Because all elite casters, pretty much all the elite distance, ca- I mean, accuracy. I mean, there's a ton of good distance casters in the world. The top 40 right now are throwing the five weight when they had it in Norway this last year at the, at the World Games. Yeah. The top 40 people are between 138 and 144. That's amazing. 144 feet. Yeah, with the five weight. Now, this isn't just like any old line. I'm saying it's all held to the same exact line. So that's how good these people at the, at the higher level of things are. And it's like, so I just think that, yeah, once once people have that 
kinesthetically. I'm sorry that those people understand casting because they wouldn't have gotten there otherwise. Yeah. But but somebody, <laughs> there's somebody that worked with those people too to get them there. Oh yeah. What what's stopping those people? Say the um, you know, the Ray Ray Jeff sort of thing, stopping them from taking the next level and going 170 feet or whatever with a five weight. Oh, just air drag, man. Nobody will ever go much past that. That's probably the. I don't think that'll get broken because it can be. You only have X amount of weight. Like a five a five weight line for 30 feet weighs 140 grains. Um, the lines that we're using are for those big big casting events is usually the expert distance line made by scientific angler and um they're a 120 foot line and the heads on those lines that's where the magic comes in the head's only 77 feet long does that make sense yeah so there's only a finite amount of weight so everybody's limited to the same amount of weight and you got air drag acting on the loop and and so it all boils down then when those really big distances the biggest thing to make a big event like with new world records broken is about the air density so it's just like talking about like helicopters and airplanes and what's favorable air. Oh, right. You know, like why does a golf ball go further in Denver than it does at sea yeah. level? Yeah, you got all that. That kind of stuff. That's what happens with these kind of distances. Right. But there's no super, there's no super new, um, you know, graphite technology, line technology that's going to change that. It's just, that's physics. Oh, yeah. No, that won't change it. Yeah, it's just physics. So I'm saying that the limits to growth, are, we've probably already close to approach them at this day and time. That's pretty cool. So it sounds like you know a little bit of the history. Are you kind of a history buff in the fly fishing and fly tying? Is that something you think about a lot? You, um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I talk about on the road, like I'll do classes. I did a thing two years ago on the road for uh strayer because that, that's the, one of the topics they wanted me to talk about. I'm like, fine. So we talked about Don Gappen up on the Nipagon River with the muddler minnow and we talked about all the history because you know when i was a kid there was only about six streamers that were popular yeah and i mean and everybody thinks they're all obsolete because there's cooler and better ones now and that's totally not true i mean it's like you can still go out any river in the world and take take two woolly boogers and smoke fish left and right it's like and that fly was from kansas city supposedly like as a kid that was another ozark fisherman from kansas city missouri that came up with that back in 1928 oh nice but um no, so I, I know my history like of patterns, like of the of the big common patterns. Nowadays that's getting harder to do because there's just so much change of fur and a feather on something and whatever, and then everybody acts like it's something totally new. But I'll say this: that those old school patterns that North America developed will never, will never be obsolete. You know what I'm saying? It's not just because old dudes think they were good because they fished them all over the world, but I mean those were good patterns. And they were really good. I think I think there's a craze right now, Dave, where everybody's throwing too big of stuff. Yeah, I really do. Because I mean, I've caught I caught one here like in the early years when I worked on the Nantahala a lot. I caught a brown that was on like all over Atlanta, Raleigh, Chattanooga, and it was like it was like a 24 pound brown. I caught that on a size 10 muddler minnow. Oh wow, 24 pounds. Yeah, jeez. And it was a big deal, but everybody acted like, well, it wasn't even a big fly. But being you don't have to have a massive fly. I know people that fish a lot have seen like the, the power of a 26 midge and what it can do in the right water type, you know? It's like big fish still going to eat snacks, and a, a small sculpin swimming by is a nice snack for a big fish, you know? Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, those big fish, they get to a certain size, and they do eat a lot of other fish, but they're still uh, opportunistic, right? So they'll still take whatever's easy for them. They'll still take it. I think if they really want to see numbers, they're better off throwing you know, those smaller sizes, like tens, 
size eights, that kind of stuff. I mean, stuff that's four and five inches long, I've had to do that so many times. And it's just because it's a trend the last few years. I remember one float trip last year, this bachelor party group, they all had like cliff boxes just stuffed with five, six inch streamers. This is a funny story. And we're yeah. floating down. I'm like, and they wanted to throw it because they tied all these sure. things. And I don't blame them. But I mean, it's like four hours had gone by and I hadn't touched a oh, fish. Oh, wow. And we're on a river with literally 16,000 fish per mile. Damn. And I said to them, I said, you ready? You want to catch fish? You want to keep throwing this? And finally, I had to wait till they admitted they didn't want to throw it no more. And they said, yeah, let's, let's catch fish. And I put on a size 14 wet fly, just a single wet fly. And both of them doubled the first cast. So, I mean... <laughs> You want to catch fish, you got to fish stuff that's close to the size that makes fish want to eat. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's a trend right now that's too big. People are throwing too big. Yeah. Do you see that in your, so you see that in your area too? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just cause it's getting all the love on social media and all these places. And I think that's part of it. Yeah. Well, and it's part of the whole, you know, we just had a uh, Chad Johnson on, you know, recently on the white river and it's, it's like. You know, that whole thing, Kelly Gallup, right? The the namings and all that stuff. And it's just, uh, yeah, I think there's, it sells, right? Some of those funny names and all that stuff. And it works too, right? Sometimes, but uh, but not everywhere. Oh, it can work. Yeah. It's kind of like musky fishing then. Though. Yeah. It's like, it's easier to go in there with smaller stuff and do well. I mean, just like the lakes up in the Northwest, like we'll throw a lot of like triple streamers that are smaller streamers in those big lakes, like in Canada. And you get some like huge exceptional fish on those little size. It's cool hearing you talk because you remind me of Pete Erickson. I'm not sure if you know Pete at all. He's kind of the Euro, well, Team USA out there. You know, they just won the gold. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know Pete. Yeah, you know Pete. Well, Pete's kind of been helping us with our Euro nymphing school. And, and I spent a weekend with him out there. And he sounds just a lot like you. Like he says, hey, Euro nymphing works. But so does all this other stuff. And, you know, it's not like he's focused on just this one thing. He's really kind of like you say, like he's not saying, hey, the, you got to have a five-inch streamer. It's like all this stuff works. You just got to, right? You kind of got to learn and use it and all that. But you guys, you guys sound similar. So well, what's your take? Give me give me on Pete. Uh, how do, Have you just known him through like the show or how do you know Pete? I know him from uh, Team USA stuff with um, a lot of the kids I had at the college were on the team with him. Oh, right. And. Tim, he did a lot of stuff with Tim. I think he helped him with the, the shadow. Oh, yeah, with Ray Jeff. Yeah, with Echo and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but I helped develop that rod that Tim did. I mean, back when he was with Loomis. Oh, you did? Yeah, I developed long rods back in 87. Like everybody everybody in the nation said, especially where I live, well, nobody would ever do that. Because here, all the little fly shops that were here at the time were telling people buy six-foot rods. Oh, wow. And I'm like, no, nah. <laughs> I mean, I already knew, I mean, cause I spay cast a lot back then. I mean, in the eighties and I mean, with longer stuff and I knew that it would be nothing but an advantage having 10 to 12 foot rods to trout fish with, and you could dry fly with them. You could wet fly with them. You could nymph with them. You could do everything. Right. Just having that longer lever would make life easier, not harder. Yeah. Cause casting's casting. It's like, here's the thing. There's just a lot of ignorance in the sport that sparkles the sport. They thought because. If you had a longer rod, you'd go in the trees more. It's just because they were bad casters. So, I mean, that's an ignorant thing to say. But the line doesn't go in a tree anymore, whether a rod's two foot big or 12 foot big. It has to do with how good are you at controlling the line. And that's what casting is. But as a, as a you know teacher, that's really what it is. We have to have an awareness of where the line's going. Yeah, where it's going. What is your, in that area part where you live near... Um you know, the, all the streams you fish, what's the perfect rod? What's the typical rod? If somebody's coming, if we were coming in to fish with you, what should we be bringing? I fish always 10 and a half foot, two weights. 
Oh, two weights. That's what I like. Yeah. Ten and a half foot twos is what I prefer. So is this kind of like, would this be more of a, almost like a Euro nymphing action type rod or what, what's the, what's the rod type? No, it's, it's got a, a slower butt and a fairly fast tip for roll casting. So a lot of those I've had to develop, I mean, have a made. What would be that rod? Like if, what would be the manufacturer where you could find one of those that you use? That new stealth rod's really nice that TFO did. That's a nice rod. There's a lot of them now because now everybody's copied it. I mean, the last 30 years, everybody's starting to make a long rod because they didn't think it would ever go. And then when they got big, you know, and everybody guiding or the comp fished was using them. That's what I mean. Just look at it like that. Even in the world of that, everybody's fishing that in a big world championship. So people wouldn't fish something to handicap themselves, would they? No. And it's been that way for the last 25 years. So, so in America, it was just slow to get that change, you know? Yeah. Because... By the time it got popular, I'd already lost the luster. I mean, I'd already done a bunch of long rods, prototypes with Lemus and a lot of a lot of companies that were really state-of-the-art graphite. And I already had an arsenal of them back in the 80s, you know? Yeah. Then when it got trendy and everybody was talking about it, I was like, man, y'all are a day late and a dollar short because it was 25 years later. Yeah. When it got popular, you know what I'm saying? So so it's just kind of funny yeah. how stuff takes a long time to change. What, what about the Euro, the Euro nipping stuff? Do you remember when that kind of came or is that is more of a newer thing hitting the streets here no i don't think it's new at all i mean i think that's how my granddaddy that's how we fished a lot in the ozarks on current river and stuff i mean tight line it's been around back in the 30s in america so the whole thing was just another it's just like the five inch streamers okay it's just another rebranding of the sport marketing bunch of marketing let's call it european that make people will go what's that and just another rebranding. And that stuff comes from like your big media yeah. magazines and all that. But these days, I don't think that those things are carrying near that much clout. Because where does it come from now? I think it's way more on on a blog post and people's websites and, you know, shows and things like that. I don't think that it's coming from that because I think a lot of that's gone backwards too. You used to see a lot of good articles, you know, in printed magazines. Most of them have gone out already. They're not even in publication. Yeah. It's changed a lot for sure. Yeah, the magazines, the whole scene has changed. And even this right now, right? We're sitting here talking on a podcast and this was not here, you know, uh, whatever, 15 years ago. Oh yeah, 10, 15 years ago. And it's just like, <laughs> I saw one the other day of last month and I was just like shaking my head. Connor brought up the mail from the, he has to go down to get the mail, you know, every day when he gets out of school. And one of the covers on it, it said, add a dropper and double your chance. And I was looking at just shaking my head. I'm like, man. Yeah. The sports regressed. Right. Had a dropper, double your chances, right? I mean, it's just silly. Yeah. Just silly. It was like, then people, are, I mean, I guess they think that's going to get somebody excited, but yeah, I don't know. It just kind of, kind of turns me off. The older I get, when I see titles like that, I'm just not even interested in opening the cover. Yeah, I know. What would be a good title for this? We've kind of been all over the place on this episode, but what would be a good title for this conversation we've had today? What, what do you think? Man, that's a good question. <laughs> Because I, when I got into this, I was thinking about, you know, we talked about some of it, you know, fly casting. We talked a little bit about your area, um, but titles are hard because, you know, it, it's the first thing that gets people to uh, listen or read, right? And But you want to be honest about it, and, and right? It's, uh, I don't know, I have to think about that. Probably, I mean, just, I don't know, casting. We've talked a lot about casting, too. So Yeah. Maybe out Southern, Southern Appalachia, you know, Great Smoky Mountains region and yep. something about casting. And something about casting, yeah, I like that. Yeah, that, it'll be something there. Yeah, something about that in there with it. But um, yeah, it's it's changed, and there's some of it that's for the better. I mean, I think that I don't know the tight line stuff. Yeah, I did it a lot as a kid in the '60s, 
So, but the thing is, I mean, I also think it's part of the regression. I probably shouldn't say that. Yeah. But I think part of the regression, because anymore in this part of the country, it's gotten so big. And I was the one that taught it at the college and taught a lot of it here in this area. And out of this area, there's been multiple Team USA adults on the team. There's been, you know, eight world championship teams come out of here with the youth kids. Oh, wow. And so then it makes it grow in popularity. And almost that I hadn't taught it or pushed it as much as I did back then. Because it also leads to the regression. Like, what incentive is there to learn to cast once you just lob a piece of mono 10 feet? It's almost the same ball game as bobbers being launched 10 feet. I've heard that, you know, and I've had Pete and others on talk about that. And I think some of the best, the better known, you know, the champions have always said, hey, Euro is one part of it, but you have to be an all-around angler to win. That's right. You want to not neglect the other stuff like we talked about in casting and all. Yeah. But I think that then in a lot of ways, that's what so much of the, People that visit this area, that's what you see a lot of them doing now as they show up. It's just straight mono, and then they see something 30 feet away, and they can't get it there because right now we're fishing really light flies, you know? Yeah. That's the biggest problem with the mono, the euro, that whole thing is that— It's limited. It's limited. And casting again. So this is a good—you're the perfect person to ask this question because I think actually I had uh, uh, Ray Jeff on when we were talking about the echo transfer over, and he he asked me this question about, like, what is fly casting or what is fly fishing? What makes fly fishing fly fishing? And that's that whole Euro thing. Like, hey, if you're not casting the line, like what would be your definition of fly fishing? What do you have to have for it to be fly fishing? Well, you're talking about Tim, right? Yeah, Tim. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I was talking about Tim. So I would say the same thing Tim said, because you, know, you have to have the whole reason this came about. Well, that's a good question. I mean, that you brought it up for this reason, that we're talking about controlling a loop of line. Right. And why do we use a loop of line, like fly line? to propel something that has no weight to go on its own. If you grab a weight fly, like a wet fly, or a, say you grab a tiny parachute, how far could you throw it with your hand? Yeah, not very far. Not very far. You might get it with mono 25, 30 feet if you use the right mono, because not all mono is created equal. Oh, yeah. But yeah, with the right mono, we could still fish it effectively 30, 35 feet away, but not much further because the mono is going to have a limitation. So... Yeah, the fly line having, I mean, even silk, going back to the silk days. I mean, I still like silk for certain things, but uh, but I think that that's the whole reason is because we can have this delivery system for things that are, you know, have air resistance and they, they weigh very little. So that's how I would define it. Yeah. But here's here's the, the point that you brought up that I think is kind of ironic. When we start getting really heavy, like heavy articulate five-inch streamers and things that weigh a lot, even the clouser with big dumbbell, lead eyes i mean i love that fly and it's a fantastic fly but you got to really balance the line with it because now we're kind of doing two things we got a fly that's real heavy now we're trying to make a fly line forming this loop of line there comes a point where we're fighting the system of <laughs> we're using this fly line so we can propel things that are weightless what happens when we start putting real heavy things on it there comes a point where it's probably more efficient to go back and put it on a spinning rod oh right that's my point yeah because you're starting to cast yeah like a spin rod right no, so so where is that transition? Probably different for everybody. But uh, yeah, I mean, but that's what in my mind separates the difference of why would we throw monofilament versus using a fly line. Yeah, gotcha. Wow, this is this is awesome, Mac. I, I um, you know, I want to let you get out of here pretty quick. I, I didn't want to leave the music because I love uh, getting some music background. Talk about what you have going there. Do you have a, a fiddle next to you right now? Is that something that you uh, you play regularly? Yeah, more guitar here lately. We've, we've been playing a lot of electric guitar here this last year. My oldest boy plays a lot, and he wanted to get into the electric scene, so we got a, a 62 Les Paul 
and that's been so fun at night like having that with the other instruments that we have oh, wow. so we've been doing a lot like rock stuff with that oh cool so you guys are playing you're playing some music around the house in the evenings oh yeah every night every night pretty much every night with the boys yeah yeah do you have some music out there that we could listen to or do you guys is that more just do you do around the house no i mean we i play a lot of music out like still for uh mostly for services you know like different services memorials things like that but uh i don't play out like i used to play out a lot like when i got out of school play around the festivals all over the country and i didn't like it at all i like being back here being here yeah what would be a um you know uh if like on spotify is there a, a group a band type of music that somebody could search and listen to like what you like what you play with that celtic fiddle well there's good i mean but i do different different uh <laughs> a lot of different stuff like I, i'm i like the dead a lot too i mean i was in a dead cover band for three years oh really uh, the grateful dead so i mean i like a lot of stuff just because i play gotcha that style doesn't mean i also like playing like robert johnson blues yeah so you do it all i mean i like a lot of different music like most musicians i most musician friends of mine that I know, I mean, we're into a lot of different kinds of music. Yeah. I know it sounds silly, but it's like, yeah, as far as bluegrass, I grew up playing bluegrass a lot in East Tennessee. So, I mean, there's killer bands out there in bluegrass. I mean, there are better bands today than they've probably ever been. Yeah. Like I was listening earlier before this podcast to Molly Tuttle and Golden Highway, okay. Billy Strings. I mean, Perfect. there's some phenomenal players. Like Seth Taylor's from here, Woodbox Heroes, that's a great band. They just played the Opry the other night. I mean, oh, wow. there's there's a lot of good bands out there. Perfect. That's all I wanted. Yeah, we got a little scratch of my own niche. I got some stuff to plug in and listen to here today. So cool. Well, I'll let you get out of here, Mac. I appreciate your time. Um, you know, this has been great. I think we've covered a lot of topics, but uh, we'll, we'll send everybody out to uh, macbrownflyfish.com. And then if they want to check your guide school, what's the website again for the guide school? It's uh, flyfishingguideschool.com. Yeah, flyfishingguideschool. Awesome. Well, thanks for all you know today for all the time and uh, love this conversation. I love it. I think it gave a lot of people a lot of things to think about, and uh, you know, especially on the casting and everything there. So uh, definitely, we'll look forward to keeping in touch with you. Yeah, I appreciate it, Dave. Thanks for having me. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. and please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country, so if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.